Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins and I'm sat in the RBP headquarters in Hammersmith with my extravagantly named colleague Jasper Mirison Bowie. <laughs> Hi, Barney. For this special episode, I'm thrilled to welcome not one but two very special guests to our lair. Legendary smash hits, Q and Mojo editor slash publisher and author of Rockstar's Stole My Life, Mark Allen, is joined by award-winning author of I'm Not With The Band and Same Old Girl, Sylvia Patterson. Hello. <laughs> Great to have you here. Mark and Sylvia are here to talk about the comic genius that was the late Tom Hibbert, whose life and writings are celebrated in RBP's very own new book, Few A Readers, published this very day by Nine Eight Books. Jasper, suffice it to say that we're rather proud of this tome, are we not? Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. Most of all, it's just been huge fun to work on. For obvious reasons, I mean, I didn't get to experience Tom's writing the first time round, so getting to immerse myself in yards of Hibbertiana has been a real joy. And um, early on, we made the decision that it should be much more than just an anthology, that it should be just as much about Tom as by him. So it was a huge pleasure to speak to his widow, Elise, and we invited a whopping 12 writers to reminisce about him, the results of which are interspersed throughout the book. Two of the first people we thought of were Mark and Sylvia, and you've both written wonderful pieces for the book. Thank you very much. Mark, you included the story of how you originally met Tom. Could you take us back to that first encounter? Well, yes, I can remember that very clearly, actually. It was uh, 1980, I think, and there was a, a, an IPC strike which kept the melody maker and the enemy off the street. And to fill the, the vacuum, because there were you know, hundreds of thousands of people who bought uh, weekly papers every week, um, Mark Williams, who was, uh, at that point had, actually, had almost become the editor of the enemy, but had some run-in with the law, which pre- prevented him from <laughs> taking the position. He, together with Felix Dennis, the, the uh, former Oz editor and, and publisher, knocked together a, a kind of uh, a weekly um, kind of uh, music paper to, to fill the gap, and was calling up all the people that they liked and thought might want to join him. And they rang me up, and I wasn't going anywhere at the enemy. It was, I wanted to write about the B-52s, and I just wanted to write about a certain ratio, and, you know, <laughs> crispy ambulance. And, and, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll give this a whirl. And I got there. It was on press day, on, I think, pretty much the first issue. And I can remember going down to a basement in Rathbone Place off the Tottenham Court Road in this incredible heat in the summer, and all these very wired-up-looking people who'd yeah, clearly yeah, been yeah. up for days, bashing together the last pages of this thing. You know, and this is the old analogue world where you had to put bits of copy stuck on, you know, boards. <laughs> literally and, pasting. And literally cutting and pasting, exactly, scalpels. And there in the corner, a little alcove, was this guy with a cigarette in his mouth, tapping away on a typewriter, and rubbing his hands together with glee after he'd read <laughs> what he'd written. <laughs> And I looked over his shoulder and I realised he was writing letters to the, the, the newspaper. And I, I sort of said, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing the letters. And I said, well, why are you writing them? He said, we don't have any letters. In fact, we don't have any readers. <laughs> so, so he was writing letters, which he then answered. And I said, well, look, I'll give you a hand with that. So I then wrote some letters and he answered them. And then that afternoon, this is just so extraordinary, he suggested we go out onto Oxford Street, stop the first person who would be prepared to be put in a photo booth and allow us to put some money in and get their picture, and then edit the letters in the imagined persona <laughs> of that person. I mean, how psychedelic is this? It's incredible. So that's what we did, and that was my first day, and I just thought, this guy is sensational. 
I never met anyone like him. I never worked on a publication that had those those kind of principles. You know, it was just, <laughs> just wild. I mean, what I also didn't quite realise at the time is it wasn't going to be terribly commercial. It was going to be <laughs> going to be a publication that was far more fun to be on than to read. I'm sure. And, <laughs> Did uh, Felix ever sort of tap anyone on the shoulder? I mean, namely Tom, and say, "You're not taking this altogether seriously, are you?" But, or did just Felix just enjoy I don't Felix had no... The... I think he enjoyed the fact that it was back to underground press. That yeah. was his thing. Right. He wanted to be back in the underground press. He was making lots of money out of uh, Bruce Lee and all sorts of one-shots and magazines. computer magazines. He yes. just wanted to be back in the world where, you know, you could be you could be there, kind of, yeah, in the underground, yeah. you know, doing something radical. Yeah. And I think he had probably had no opinion at all about what it was, what it was like, you know. Fair enough. I remember buying at least one issue and, and it must have been the one it was you was it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sorry I didn't know uh-huh. 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 of, of what you said um, <laughs> but I remember reading the Alex Chilton interview that we have included in few A readers because I was like obsessed by Big Star like yeah. Tom was so I did have that and I do remember sort of reading some of the reviews that were, were clearly not taking music. Well, a lot of them were penned under pseudonyms because the writers were still actually technically on strike. For for, for about a month, I was Candice Be Real. (laughs) And that's (laughs) pathetic, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely pathetic. People would ring up the office and say, can I speak to Candice, please? And you'd go, hello. I don't. I know. I miss Be Real. Gosh. It must have been so. No, it was really good fun. It was really, it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Obviously, a big part of Tom's sort of legend is, you know, first and foremost, he's he's you know, famous for who the hell, who the hell interviews in Q, but but also like he set the sort of comedic tone at the much loved Smash Hits magazine, which you started, Mark. I mean, let's ask you, Sylvia, about your very first encounter with Mr. Hibbert. Well, it's entirely different from, from Marx in as much as Hibbs. I already knew, I knew who Tom Hibbert was. I was living and working in Dundee um, on an absolutely hideous uh, magazine called Etc. spelt wrongly, which was <laughs> trying to be the face magazine coming out of Dundee. I was not long out of school. I was a Smash It's viewer. I was, you know, I wasn't even that young. I was about 16, 17, actually. It would have been 81, 82 year era, Mark, actually when I started reading it, because I started really early on the music press. It was, it was Sounds and the NME when I was 14, 15, but that was, they were writing about a certain ratio. And, and I didn't, do you know what I mean? It was, it, it was the era the MTV was coming in and all of that. It was far too serious for me. I discovered Smash Hits around about 16. And Hibbs, we knew that he was, he was black type. We knew that he was the guy who did all the anonymous stuff. You could tell a mile off the style How was did there. You know that? Because of his interviews, that spirit... Mm-hmm. You was sprinkled entirely. Someone. It was just wrapped up a thousand, a thousand percent for, <laughs> for black type and for mutterings at the back where he did the gossip column where he was making things up and him and Kipper Williams' cartoons and all of that. You could tell he was the spirit of Smash It. Right. Well, the opportunity came through someone who gave me the advertisement, which was in the Guardian for staff writer on Smash It's magazine. It was the end of 85. And I thought, if I don't get that job, I'm going to die here in Dundee of boredom on this dreadful magazine, which was folding. Anyway, I went for the first interview at the very end of 85 with the then short-lived editor, Steve Bush. 
Then I was called up for a second interview because Steve Bush wasn't sure, I was told later. And I walked into the room in the Smashets office on Carnaby Street and there is Hibbs. And I thought, Tom Hibbert is going to be interviewing me for this job. I am beside myself, so I tried to compose myself. And he asked me all these questions and I'm not sure that I was giving him the answers that he thought he was going to get. Like, who joined Moby Great? The original line of a bird yeah. maniac. It was, it was, <laughs> who, right. it was yeah. who would you be really excited to interview? And I was kind of a bit flummoxed. Hmm, thought was, and I was a real indie kid, by the way. I looked like Mary the punk rocker out of EastEnders at the time with my 80s hair and all of that. And he said, how about Madonna? What about Prince? He is mad, you know. And I said, do you know what? Do you know what, Tom? I think I'd really love to talk to Stan out of the House Martins. I love him. And went on and on about Stan and the House Martins. And somehow he was amused by this. And we just kind of went down, I don't know, in a weird indie cul-de-sac, and it got a bit psychedelic between us. Mm. Um, and basically he kind of pushed for me to have the job. So if you'd and said, yes, I'd really love to interview Madonna, but who, who you might knows? not have got the gig. Who knows, but all I know that it was Hibbs that um, that pushed for me to have that job, and if not for him, but indeed you were the man who brought him in to smash it, so if not for you, Mark Gillen, so the <laughs> two of you have a lot to answer well, for good yeah. or ill, I would, I, I, know, I, I, would, I would not have had I this would, life. I would be uh, right. I would yeah. partly suggest that Neil Tennant was involved in that too, actually. <laughs> Very sweetly earlier on, by the way, you said that I edited Mojo, and I was the managing editor of Mojo, <laughs> and, yeah. and you said that I'd, I'd uh, started smash it, which I didn't, but then, well, then was, I sort of... I was there early on. It, it was a broad stroke. <laughs> broad stroke, broad stroke, stroke exactly. Yes. Yeah. But, um, no, uh, I, I was very nervous, because Tom I adored, I was living with Tom at that time, and wanted to, you know, just get him on board to work on the, on the magazine, because he was so funny. But I just didn't know if he was right for Smash Hits. You know, I just wondered if he was, he, was he just too cynical? So I said, look, come in and just write a few reviews and just see how you get on. And uh, so he wrote these reviews and uh, left them in one of the rooms in the office. And one was a review of a Genesis single, I think, or maybe it was Phil Collins. And it was entirely done as a play. Wow. It was about two people who were listening to this and saying, uh, one was called Kevin and I think the other was called Keith. And it was all about the quality of their hi-fi. And one was saying, um, <laughs> oh yeah, the woofers of the tweeters are working wonderfully. And, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it ends with, with Kevin going, wow, Keith, you've got an amazing hi-fi stack. And, and it's, it just says, uh, Keith nods proudly. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> the review, you know. Yeah. And I just looked at that and I thought, Christ, at this stage, I just couldn't see that that would work in Smashes, but I could see that there was lots of potential and Neil Tennant had been down the end doing an interview a phone interview with somebody he came and said I found this piece of paper he said who wrote this because this is hilarious <laughs> and that really encouraged me I thought I must get him in Aww. and got him in to write some stuff and then it just began to take off and we'd invented that whole fantasy world about the giddy carousel of pop you know and, and the dumper you guys back then yeah, yeah. that began yeah. the so- the, we lex- started- the lexicon began with yourselves. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. we started all that stuff. So yeah. with the whole idea that the, there was a carousel of pop which had about <laughs> ten acts on it, and occasionally one would be booted off and sent to the dumper. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and the dumper was a place, you know, with uh, kind of run by a sort of dour Scottish landlady that smelt of boiling cabbage and an old unlit gas <laughs> pilot lights and, and there you'd find you know Doug Trendle of, uh, of Bad Manners and Gary Newman and, and yeah. uh, members of Banana Rub or whatever whoever whose career selected to be yeah. done. so we, we started well, creating yeah. this whole world and Tommy then picked up the baton from that and started creating the characters didn't he Sir Lord Lucan of Mercury <laughs> uh, Sir Wacky Macca Thumbs Aloft yes all those people 
Dame Barbara Castle. Was it Mr. Barbara Castle? I can't remember now. Or just all these extraordinary... Saucy Sir, Sam- Sir Samuel Fox. Sir Saucy Sir Samuel, Samuel Fox. Fox. That was right. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Neil Tennant, and I just wanted to drop in this clip from the podcast episode that, that we did with Neil back in early 2020, right? Yeah. Because uh, he talks about exactly what you've been, what you've been mentioning. But Smash Hits, we always went with enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. So people would write about their personal enthusiasms yeah. in pop music. Sure, sure. And people they knew were a great story. Mm-hmm. And also the sense of humour. I think when I was there, maybe 25, that's, that started to take over. Yeah, Tom yeah. Hibbert joined. Yes, yes, of course. Who was, who was an amazing yeah. sort of Baroque writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he, and Mark, you know, is a very funny writer. And Dave, you know, they're all, they're all funny writers. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a really, really important thing. And really turning pop stars into characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And all the nicknames. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was me that knighted Will, Sir William Idol, our greatest living Englishman. <laughs> very good. Barack, what a good word. Yeah, That's yeah. perfect. Very tenant. Very, very um, ornate, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. He was, he was absolutely delightful. So, but shall we maybe go back, you know, pre-Smash Hits and just talk a little bit about, you know, Tom's origins and his early musical obsessions. You know, the, the, the first section of the book is, it consists of three very autobiographical mm. pieces. You know, his school days, discovering the birds, discovering Moby Grape, becoming obsessed by Moby Grape. When you first met him, Mark, I mean, was it, was it fairly clear after you got past the initial he's writing and answering his own letters thing <laughs> um, that what his sort of rock aesthetic was I mean did you start talking about like 60s West Coast psychedelia oh yeah well like he that? almost immediately he's moved yeah. into the house I was living in, I was living in this terrible old squat in, uh, in Dalston Eight pounds a month for the four of us, fifty p a week each. Pretty good deal. <laughs> and uh, Anton Corbine <laughs> lived there, the photographer, very all sorts of people. We had an absolutely fantastic time. And he, I remember going through my record collection, being absolutely appalled. I had records by yeah, I had records by Squeeze. Yes, and oh, he dear. just thought this was just anathema. You know, he was so upset that I didn't have a big star record. He went out and bought me some big star records. <laughs> uh, because he just quite thought right we too. can't be friends. Quite right, we can't be friends <laughs> unless you've got one of these. You know. And I worked out very quickly that he only liked certain things. He liked rather frail and damaged people like Sid yeah. Barrett. Uh, he liked Rocky Erickson. Utterly. Yeah, exactly. He loved the Kinks. His absolute favourite group was the Birds. He didn't like the Beatles. Didn't seem to like the Stones, which is incredible. I'd never met anyone who didn't like the Beatles. He just thought there were more interesting <laughs> things to listen to. And uh, so mostly it was kind of Moby Grape. Vanilla fudge, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of. Uh, I, I think he liked sort of authentic music. He liked things that had no frills. That wasn't really an act. Although clearly, actually, it was an act. But he wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't acknowledge that. So that was really interesting. I have to say, actually, in this house, also his cooking was sensational. I must mention because <laughs> he. I think he one of those people who was so bad at cooking. He would deliberately offer to cook in the hope that people would be so appalled he'd never be asked again. And, and his worked. signature dish was burgers. And burgers was instant Saxo, uh, was it no, pa- Paxo, is it? Paxo, sagey onion and stuffing, moistened with tap water and pan fried in margarine. Burgers. <laughs> and he also heated the house with logs, which was uh, rolled up, tightly rolled up copies of Time Out thrown on the fire. Unbelievable. How, how well did that work? 
Very, very badly. <laughs> Incredibly badly. He had no practical sense at all. His, one of his earliest journalistic things had been working on a, a magazine to do with, I think, DIY. And he'd run an article supposedly about uh, how to wire up your kitchen mm-hmm. or something. And yep. someone had rung up and complained bitterly, possibly with some threat of legal action, <laughs> that they'd followed his instructions and, and uh, you know... Immolated their come, own home. Exactly that, you know. Yep. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, and I just got to know a little bit about him, you know, and about his family, his family. His father was Christopher Hibbert, the fantastic popular historian, wrote 62 books. Wow. And I went to their home many times and uh, in Henley and met him, and fantastic people. And I got the impression immediately that he'd grown up in a world where fantasy worlds were very much encouraged. I remember going around to his flat in Fulham once and his dad and mum were there and listening to his dad and Tommy talking about the garden. And uh, his dad said, so how did the flowers are looking absolutely marvellous to me? How did he said, well, I, it's a question of the right breeds. You know, it's a question of watering them, obviously, and maintenance and a bit of nutrients, uh, putting them in a place where they get the best sunlight and all that. You know. I was listening to this absolutely deadpan conversation for about two minutes. And I looked down and they were talking about plastic flowers. <laughs> Tom, to cheer up his garden, had planted plastic daffodils. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of world he came from. So oh, where you were encouraged. Kind of it too, then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Right. So oh, that fantastic. kind of fantasy world. Amazing. Seven golden daffodils Gleaming in the sun We could not have done the book without Elise, and Jasper and I went to visit Elise and interviewed her at some length about about Tom, whom he met in, in 1980. And um, the result of that was this wonderful piece, Tom and Me, by Elise. And just, I love this particular <laughs> story where... So she's, she's American. Elise is American and her family are in Massachusetts. And so Tom flies with her to meet her family. And she said, I, I still remember the first time he came to my parents' house in Massachusetts. I parked the car just before we arrived there. And I said to him, OK, so the story is <laughs> that the airline lost your luggage. And that's why you look like this. <laughs> His specs were one glass and one shade. And he had these yeah. awful black shoes he used to wear. I always thought that if all the mirrors in the world were destroyed Tom would have been the last person to notice it's so it's much more when he proposed to her he proposed to her in in Boston in a bar in Boston and uh, he he had a ring too which was the ring pull from a can of beer Now that's class. That is class. She was just melted by that. (laughs) This is the man for me. I mean, funny enough, one of the last things we we found or unearthed before going to print was I happened to be rummaging through an old copy of Let It Rock. And there, from December 73, Let It Rock was a letter from one one Tom Hibbert, Henley on Thames, Oxen. And it's it's just... Classic Hibbert, even at that point, 1973. I won't read it out, but it's very, very funny. And so, you know, even in mean, 70s, he's already his whole thing, and he's been to, you know, muddy rock festivals. And he's already, you know, kind of disenchanted with the fact that the sort of 60s rock and roll dream didn't really kind of turn into anything lastingly meaningful, right? He's already sort of got that sort of warped take on it all. Yeah, we've talked about some of the people he was most passionate about. And Alex Chilton, we mentioned earlier, yeah. he was able to write about some of that stuff, but it, but at Smash Hit, 
you know, he's thrown into the, the he's thrown onto the giddy carousel. Isn't he? <laughs> so tell us about like sort of just sitting next to Tom Hibbert for what at least a year, eighteen months. You know, it's it's bizarre to be. To, to, I was actually quite apprehensive about reading the book because I thought to myself, do you know what? He's always been a massive enigma to me, entitled on yeah. every level imaginable. I knew nothing about him. He didn't even voice his taste, as it were. Well, he was in a comedy way into the magazine. He was always going on about Spooky Tooth or whatever. <laughs> but he, was, he wasn't someone who was sitting playing, you know, the psychedelic music from the 1960s on the turntable because, you know, Sue Miles, who was actually, she was on doing the, um, the lyrics because it was too busy pumping out the, the hits of the day. Yes. But he would, I mean, his passions became completely comedy and it was all Princess Stephanie of Monaco, for example, or, you know, and Sir Cliff Richard, he, well, where's his knighthood and all this kind of thing. So you never really knew where, what, what he was about musically. I mean, I realised he was older, but he was kind of ageless as well. I didn't know anything about his background. I just thought this he's been beamed from the pages of a PG Woodhouse. Uh, <laughs> the way he talked, it was good lord, an old chap, and all the, all the time. And it was entirely, you know, constant. It wasn't like he turned that on. That was his personality. Yeah. But more than anything else, he just sat there and he just did the work because he loved doing the work. And it was exactly as you said earlier on, Mark, there he is with his two fingers, two fingers. on the electric <laughs> typewriter, the snout dangling yep. out of his mouth. Ah, little bobber, all over yes. <laughs> yeah. and you know he didn't even need the tipex because he wasn't making any mistakes. Right. It was just rolling out, and at great speed as well. And by 1987, I might become at the age of 21, 22. The news editor and the news section was called Bits, and um, Tom had, had had already been the voice of Bits for some time. Um, Peace out, Martin. Before him, I think. And I would be commissioning this man. who would be commissioning him to write things, and he would just hand him. You know, a news, a PR news release saying there's a new single by um, the solstress Natalie Cole. And he would just put a piece of paper into the typewriter and, you know, half an hour later, it would come a news piece called People in Pop Called Cole. And it would be uh, Natalie Cole's a new, a new single out. Oh, that reminds me of, you know, um, Richard Cole's Natalie <laughs> Cole, blah, blah. And then it would go on and on, a little description of all these calls in pop. And then at the end, it would just say, Arthur Scargill, famous coal man, not much good at pop. <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of thing was just daily. Yes. Yeah, I, was I was so daily. impressed by the fact that you and various other people, I think Chris Heath and, and Tommy Doyle, write about working with him and being taught by Tom, which is really mm. interesting because I had no experience with that at yeah, all. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't sit there and kind of lecture each other or advise each other on mm. how to write. We just, I commissioned him and, you know, and edited mm. his stuff. But there's a lovely bit where Chris Heath, I think, is talking about his writing pop stories and how he has to have one fact about every group in the news story. Mm. And he can't think of anything to say about the Pale Fountains. And Tom says, oh, just say something like, the Pale Fountains once refused to skate on a frozen canal or something. Yes. And Chris brilliantly says, he loved that. He said it was the double-down banality of it, <laughs> that, that, that uh, an uninteresting <laughs> event never happened. That <laughs> <laughs> was, was so clever. You know, that was what Tom would think was an absolute jackpot. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, that's superb. I, I love the way in your piece, Sylvia, you, you quote... The, the entire thing he wrote about the upper Bubblington village. I it's been, it's been, I've been writing about that for, for three decades. I, I really have. I, it is almost <laughs> impossible to read through that and not and not just kind of fall about in hysterical laughter. I mean, 
Starring such acts as Reg, Reg Snipton and his banjo boys, Herman in a bucket. <laughs> yeah. It, the Rita Gorm experience, <laughs> cucumber and sponge bag public house. I mean, it's just. And it just feels like... That was, that was picking up the battle, because we just started doing that. It was so funny. We just invented groups called um, things like uh, the, the Flying Savoy Brothers and yes. Janet. <laughs> uh, I think the human saucepans of the Orinoco. We say yes. they were in the next issue. And Tom just absolutely runs away with that. Yeah. And writes whole things about a village yeah. fate, a fantasy yeah. village fate. I mean, that was because there was a, a space missing in that week's, um, or that fortnight's, live happenings page wasn't it Happen- yeah. the happenings page yes, yes. there wasn't enough going on because it was summer it was just a few festivals so yes. a few festivals were mentioned and then he couldn't make the type massive for, for, for the happenings page so he just filled it up with his own uh, dreamscape and handed it to and, and it was com- entirely anonymous and he didn't even say to anyone that that's what was going on he, I didn't see it until it was printed in the magazine <laughs> mm-hmm. he did this just for the sheer glee of it I think yeah, one of the things right. that's just wonderful is that, I mean, I hadn't really read much. I'd read some, some of his writing before coming to this book, but not that much. And it stands up so well. It's still so funny. I mean, like, I still look at this book. Obviously, I've read all the pieces in it many times at this stage, having, you know, put it together and proofed it and all that. But I still find myself laughing out loud as I'm leafing through it. Still, it's funny, and it's and that's just it's not true for all things, or indeed for most things. So it's just so wonderful that his language, his approach. I think one of the things, and you pick up on this, Mark, in your piece, is that he kind of has a kind eye, a kindness to him. That's not. It's not. Even though he's making fun of people all the time, a he's not ever making fun of the reader. He's never kind of looking down on the reader. Very true. Yeah, and b. The things that he makes fun of, he kind of... It's disappointment in a sort of arch way, rather than anger or misery. It's not like he's just tearing people down because he finds mean. it yeah. fun. It's not mean. No, there's, there's no the meaneness thing. in it. It's and a then, send-up. And know. then he's taking you as the reader, he's taking you with him, and he's kind of just making this whole environment, this whole landscape, something of fun and something to be kind of yeah. just smiled at. That's and, very well put. And mm. I, very well put. And I love that about yeah. him. I really, I really do. Chris Heath says something quite similar. He talks about how everyone thought he he was just grumpy and everything was a disappointment. It was a disappointment, but he, he had very high standards. Yes. And he, when things worked out the way they should have done, people delivered the records they should have delivered, he's absolutely overjoyed mm. and couldn't be more ecstatic. Mm. And I think Chris says something very memorable. It's not that he wanted to take the world down a peg or two, he wanted to take it up a peg or two. Yes. Yeah. He wanted it to be better, you know. Yes. I that was but I think your, really true. your point about, about taking people on board, uh, one of the things that struck me rereading was the reviews that writing about music is incredibly hard as you <laughs> yeah. know because it's not visual yeah. it's sound and you know if you're writing descriptive pieces about what things look like it's fairly easy so most rock journalists tend to go for that kind of or certainly did that kind of uh, it's kind of Gregorian chant meets the Pet Shop Boys you know what I mean in, <laughs> at a barbecue at Billy Bragg's house and that's meant to be your idea yeah, of what yeah, it sounds yeah, like yeah. but Tommy did this brilliant thing where even if you didn't understand anything about music at all you'd still be really entertained you'd get a really clear idea uh, completely randomly on the tube coming here this morning I uh, opened up his reviews and I found this one. It's just, it's very short. It just says a group called the Simeonics, the record called In This Heat, who I've never heard of actually. He says, um, 
the sound of a trickling ghostly violin, like those played by toothless gypsies in misty graveyards just before the murderer strikes again, and the police inspector goes, those same marks on the neck? My God, what kind of creature are we looking for in a crackly and crackly old horror film? Wafts wistfully... Uh, fitfully, rather, while the deep, battle-fatigued voice of a male person moans despairingly about a lost straw hat. Absurd? Question mark. <laughs> That's amazing, because you've been completely entertained, you know. The amount of visual, you know, kind of visual image. That. Yeah, yeah. I know. Mm. Yeah. It's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. We are I want to give a shout out to a few more of the contributors to, to the book, yeah, uh, which include Caroline Grimshaw, who's actually designed yeah. the, the look of the book and the cover and everything. And she was a smash hits designer, I yeah. think is correct. And I think also worked on Q. And she's written a lovely piece. But there's also, you know, you mentioned Tom Doyle, of course, mentioned Chrissy. William Shaw yeah. wrote a wonderful piece that includes these descriptions of going on, on holiday with Tom and Elise and his own William's wife to sort of really kind of improbable places actually not 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 Africa. tourist tracks yeah hot yes exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom and Shorts was just Tom and Shorts on the beach in Senegal and they just yes. something stack up there's <laughs> a picture it's of not that. in the oh, message yeah. 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 I don't know if he's wearing shorts actually I'd have to have to double yeah. check those that. legs quakey yeah no they just like go out there and, and I think what William Shaw writes is that initially Tom and Elise would just go and book a resort somewhere and they would stay in the resort drinking cheap booze and just sunning themselves basically they invited William along at some point and he said you know can't we go somewhere basically and then they started just going places and 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 I think from the sound of it Tom's sort of spirit just sort of took over and he just started meeting people talking to people just enjoying the whole difference of everything you know it's just it's it's a lovely piece that William wrote and then we also you mentioned Kipper Williams cartoons earlier so you that you know we've got some of them in the book as well and yes, that's we're trying to get lo- lots it's of different just, we've kind sprinkled, of elements, we've sprinkled yeah. elements into, into yeah. whatever, we, whatever we can. Yeah, so. it's, it, exactly. Now, t- talking of pictures, there are pictures of you, Mark, rehearsing with Tom. <laughs> with him with inverted had... commas around it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so you had a man called The Love Trousers. There's also a picture of Robin Hitchcock jamming with Tom. Shay, Shay the Hibberts. So Robin writes a bit about that. And they, they share the kind of, like, sort of neo-psychedelic yeah, aesthetic. Yeah, But tell us just briefly about the, the Love Trousers. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> the Love Trousers. Which is a group before, just playing covers, really. It was yeah. just songs that he wanted to play. So we played old Kink songs. We played uh, You Keep Me Hanging On, was it, by the... The, the Vanilla, Vanilla Fudge, Fudge version of the Supreme. We did that. Song. We did lots of Rocky Erickson. Yeah. Two-Headed Dog. Okay. Uh, we did, yeah, we just just old sight, lots of birds. Yeah. We did uh, Lover of the Bayou. Well, you, were, uh, you were allowed to select anything? Uh, oh, yeah, no, was no, I chipped in. It was mostly <laughs> him, bits of Neil Young. Yeah, there must have been musical was, differences for crying out loud. No, no, I quite like that. Yeah, we I still have like, to play two-headed dog. Two-headed dog, we just <laughs> go along with whatever we wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'd go and play funny little pub gigs and things. And he was, I mean, actually, he was a really fantastic frontman, I thought. He would be completely absorbed by it all. And I didn't realise that he'd wanted to be, and took it quite seriously, he wanted to be a pop star. I mean, his first thing was... He was in various groups. Yeah. One called Tired of Living, was it? Question mark. Was it <laughs> tired one? of Living? Question mark. <laughs> As in, are you tired of living? Oh yeah. There yeah. was one called uh, one called The Weeds. Two guitars and drums, no bass. He says uh, somewhere that he played in Flip City with Elvis Costello. 
I mean, for maybe like I one think, gig. I, I think he did. Yeah, he did. I can't yeah. remember how that happened. Is that possible? Now. Yeah. And he also, the weeds were living on a kind of Welsh sheep yes. farm where somebody was uh, synthesising illegal drugs and, <laughs> and, and Mick Jagger had apparently come by with his entourage one day in order to score and was told there was a group called the Weeds live on it. Oh, I'd like to hear the Weeds get my... <laughs> and uh, Tommy refused to play for Mick Jagger. <laughs> just, uh, everyone was terribly proud of him for doing that because then years later I thought well, he just was just didn't dare, you know, he was a bit, <laughs> a little bit cowardly and he could have done really, but he didn't approve of Mick Jagger. Very principled, you know. So he did anyway, and he had a solo career under the name of Mondo Billy Davis. <laughs> uh, but no, no, no great traction. <laughs> so it was quite serious. I can't about say I'm surprised that a record, that the Tired of Living single that came out was called Kiss a Lot of Frogs. And oh, the right. cover yeah. of it was like a, was like Princess Die and a and frog. A frog. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not shocked that that didn't sell like a million copies, you know, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's, it's out there. You can, you, there might be some copies lying around of it. I, I managed to score one for the book, so. Did you? Yeah, there's a, there's Did a, you? there's a, the image of it is in, in the pages of the book, so look out for that one. Didn't it cost you thousands on eBay then or anything? I think it cost about one pound fifty. It was a classic, frustrated, uh, failed rock star in some ways early on, you know. But he didn't, uh, he didn't hold that against the people he wrote about. That's good. I said to her, you gotta kiss a lot of frogs for all you find the prince. And switch the colours of the red and make your wince. You gotta kiss a whole lot of frogs before you find that prince. So, among the many interviews that he did for Smash Hit, so long before Who the <clears> Hell, <throat> he was he was already, do, you know, sort of in the Who the Hell mindset. So, there's just these glorious things that we've included. Wonderful interview with Sir William Idle, known at that point as Billy Idle, who's on holiday in Mallorca with his parents. And I think he's sort of mum is sunbathing topless while Tom is sort of <laughs> interviewing. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's just, it's just brilliant. And it's a wonderful picture of Tom with Billy in the book. And of course, there's the famous Margaret Thatcher interview, which, I mean, can can you just give us the, the, the context of that? Well, what happened there was that, that I, it was after I, I just left, actually, and the, there's a general election coming up. And somebody in Thatcher's office, I think very sensibly actually, thought, look, this magazine is huge. I mean, it was selling about maybe 600,000 around that time. Wow. And went on, of course, to sell a million. And they thought, look, the best way to get to the nation's youth who uh, are, are going to be moving towards the age where they could vote or whatever would be to go to Smash Hits. And so they, I think they approached Smash Hits rather than the other way around. Oh, but I anyway... Remember. It was Barry Michael Henney certainly was the head. Yeah, he was the head. Yeah. So anyway, Thatcher agreed to do it. And actually, I want to just, just read the opening paragraph. Shall I do it? Please, please, please do. I think please it's do. really an amazing piece of writing, actually, in that he gives you so much information as a Smash Hits reader. You've got to remember, most of these readers are, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 or whatever, so they just don't understand this world at all, the world of, of you know, of the, of the, of the media interview. And he starts off by saying, As I walk into the drawing room of Number 10 Downing Street, the figure in the matronly maroon outfit and pearly necklace shoots up from a golden armchair, proffers a hand and inquires in a treacly tone. <laughs> How do you do? That's brilliant, treacly, isn't it? Sit down, sit down, she urges. A radiant, in inverted commas, smile playing across <laughs> her famous features. And hitching up the trouser leggings of my Mr. Byright suit, 1999, a snip, <laughs> I do as I'm told. 
Now, dear, would you like something innocuous to drink? Orange juice? Tea? Mineral water? I plump for the water and she scuttles to the drinks cabinet, crying, it's more than water. British. We only serve British. Tom says, quite. <laughs> Here I am being, he says, I'm being poured a, a glass of refreshing mineral water by the steady hand of Margaret Hilda Thatcher, Prime Minister of the Universe. It's all very peculiar. So what, might you ask, is Mrs. Thatcher doing talking to smash hits? Simple, really. You see, pop goats. She wants you, <laughs> the youth goats. of the no, pop goats, the youth of the nation, batting on her team. Fancy that. So here we are, Mrs. T and a couple of her helpers, a young press officer to lend uh, support on taxing youth-orientated questions, and a bloke with an impressive tape recording machine to record the conversation for posterity. Oh. Now, the amount of information that he's put into that is yeah. amazing. You get a real idea of what she's like. like this. <laughs> yeah. Were you still at the hits when... <clears throat> I was. Um, Do you remember this? I remember this? it, yes. I mean, again, he, he was very low-key with it all. You know, I remember right. him buying this. The, 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 the suit. What a suit! And he thought this was Harry Potter just because he, he loved the name of the shop, Mister Byron. I think Barry, the editor, actually sent him out to buy a suit because he didn't I think have so, one. Yes, because obviously he was dressed as Elise would say, like you know, a man in a skip. So he couldn't go to number yeah. ten. I don't know where this tale comes from, but I thought it was he was given the money to rent a suit, and he thought I'll I'll buy a suit. Then that might be true. That's yeah, right because you could buy it for nineteen ninety nine. Mister Byron, just around the corner from the office. I remember too. He was really yet. He thought. Aha, I have a wheeze. And he was going to take to number 10, and he did, a black type tea towel. <laughs> and a black type tea towel was like any other tea towel that you, you know, usually you'd have at, uh, you know, the Cotswolds or a yeah. tea towel or whatever. But no, no, no. He invented a comedy tea towel, basically, which was taking in all the elements of uh, the accoutrements and the, and the area around a sink, tap, mm. pan, <laughs> scourer, kind of little description of them all, and an illustration. And this was the black type tea towel that black type gave away with, with a badge, wasn't it? The token and a £10 um, record voucher, whatever it was. He took one in, and as far as I'm aware, it could well still be in number 10, that black type. <laughs> <laughs> and I really hope that it is, get, because get who would throw that away? That's his icebreaker at the interview. That's his first question to Margaret Thatcher, is not to ask questions, simply to hand her a black type <laughs> tea towel. <laughs> Which she then confuses with something to do with Nanette Newman. For some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, she <laughs> yeah, sends she, her off she, on something. She loves Nanette Newman, no, no, no. doesn't she? If we had the audio of that, that oh probably would God. be this week's audio interview. But we have chosen, we sort of looked around, we looked at the Smash Hits interviews we've included, and we found one from the same year as the Thatcher interview with John Bon Jovi, a.k.a. Superman, um, <laughs> uh, according to, to Hibbs. So we've added this interview by Maureen Payton, which she, I think, would have done for the Mail on Sunday or the Daily Mail. And it is, it's quite sort of Hibbertesque. So we'll just listen to this short clip of John Bon Jovi talking in 2005 rather than in, in 1987. <laughs> Do you just intend to sort of go on, just go on as long as you can, and you don't have any plans to, what, to break up or anything like that? You know. Uh, uh, well, no. The, the, I, 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 I'm sort of basically stumbling. I can't even say the words. But when asked if we would be doing it on the level that the Stones are doing it mm. at their age, yeah. Personally, I keep saying no because right. I, I don't really envision myself um, wanting to be sitting in a hotel room at 63. You know, yeah. just still on the yeah. road circuit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think.
think that there's probably something else out there for me. Yeah. I'll continue to want to make records, mm. but I don't think that I'll necessarily want to be yeah. in Boston right now and drinking sure. a cup of coffee at right. noon, waking up like a vampire. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, to, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it is politics. Yeah. Maybe it is movies. Sure. Maybe it's yeah. something else. There's something else going on. Mm. And, um, and I, you mm. know, I just, the road is, it's, it's, a, it's a demanding mistress. <laughs> <laughs> Not a cliche at all. Yeah. Yeah. The road is Famous a, a double-edged sword, etc. <laughs> yeah. 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 John so Bon Jovi, he, sorry, he, he, he very famously couldn't bear smash its full stop, but especially Hibbs. I think Hibbs did him a couple of times, but certainly for the interview where you're saying um, the, the cover line was, I am Superman. Yes. That's what John Bodovi had said about himself. And um, it wasn't even that interview. Do you know, it was a, a personal file. Again, one of the anonymous ones. And Hibbs's question to him was, I hear you collect harmonicas back in there. Back in America. You have, a, you have a vast and impressive collection of harmonicas. Can you play the Stars and Stripes on your harmonica? And John Bodovi said... That smashes his idea of a music question, right? And he was absolutely <laughs> appalled. And the more appalled he was, the more ridiculous Hibs would be, obviously, because he was having no truck with his megalomania because he was one of those. Yeah, I Hibbs, think he's... technique, the interviewing well, technique, fascinating, oh, yeah. I think. Because yes. Neil Tennant told me about... And I remember this so vividly. Neil had been, as you know, at Smash Hits and uh, left and formed the Pet Shop Boys and almost immediately had... A huge... I mean, I had a number one record. Indeed. Tommy was sent out to interview him for, I suppose, the cover of Smash Hits soon after. And he was expecting this is going to be a massive celebration. It's going to be absolutely marvellous. All my life, the one thing I've really wanted to do was, you know, form a pop group. And now I've formed a pop group and I've got a number one record. You know. And Tom just, <laughs> just sat there and just lit a, lit a gasp, a snout, <laughs> as yes. we call it. Lit a snout and sort of said, so, Neil... Number one, in this kind of really kind of hollow, shrugging kind of, what's the big deal, you know? Wait, and then just then using what I, I think we used to call a siege tactic. She then didn't say anything. So Neil then suddenly started feeling quite apologetic, really. You know, this so even Neil has walked into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so immediately yeah. he started, and people he often by by just sitting there and letting people waffle on, being totally unembarrassed by silence, because most of us. Can't bear something. No, so we leap in. We, we find it awkward. We just let people leave them to hang them out to dry. Really, and they why do you think he? I mean, how did he stumble on that? Even to call it a technique, or was it just something that that he did because actually he couldn't think of the next question? I mean, was it was that? Any design in it? Well, I think no. I think he probably could think of the next question. I think he, he just, just liked the out. idea that he tried, tried it out, out and, and he found out that it worked. <laughs> yes. That people suddenly became, you know, apologetic, or it sent them off on a different track, or the result was very, very, very revealing. It was like that whole thing about the folklore of the Smash Hits questions: yeah. Does your mother play golf? What colour is Tuesday? Have you ever been sick in a gumboot? You know, and he was, <laughs> as you were, still was very much one of the architects of those kind of questions, and they were brilliant because the answer is not important. It's, it's not important whether you did or you didn't. You know, it will send you off on a tangent. And it will tell you about someone when immediately start talking about a recurring dream or their yeah. mother yeah, or. Yeah. Uh, we try uh, silent treatment here, here and now. <laughs> we could. Who's gonna blink first? <laughs> you, you, you blink first. I know it's agony. It is awful. Yeah, you just think dead air, dead air. Our listeners are gonna love this. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think that 
there's a kind of the raised eyebrow that he that he has that his writing is infused with. I think people that have a dry sense of humour that's so dry mm. actually delight in in that wriggling and in other people. I, I have a friend who's a, a little bit like that, where he'll just say something completely deadpan, like something just nonsensical, completely deadpan, and then just sort of wait. And see what people say, and I think he just—it's just amusing to him personally to do that. And mm. I kind of get a similar sense from what what Hibbert was was doing. Well, there. he started an interview with in Smashes, I think, with, was it in queue with Foreigner by saying, are, "Are you the most boring group in the world?" <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I think he really. Some of those questions. That's going to do you off guard, you know. But certainly got a reaction, you know. <laughs> and he does a tremendous job of actually. In, even in the, the interviews, which are often sort of more Q&A style things, where there's not actually that much room for a writer to express themselves, he still leaps through, leaps off the page. I mean, in the John Bon Jovi piece, he writes, John takes a delicate sip from his teacup. The sunshine wafts in through the window, trickling through his hair, and it becomes disgustingly evident that this man has not been beaten with the ugliness stick. <laughs> He is simply ravissant, my dears. A fact that perversely dogs him. John Bon Jovi does not enjoy his status as a rock and roll sex symbol. I hate it. I don't like it at all. I won't speak to the teen mags because all they want to talk about is hairspray and stuff and it's all just a crock of shit and I don't want to sell the band on that. But you're such a dreamboat. <laughs> Straight in the hands there. Ravi Soul, my dear. That is so brilliant. That is such a dream. I mean, in the sort of scheme of things, John Bon Jovi is not as sort of preposterous or self-important as some of the people we've got in this book. And that really brings us on to who the hell. I mean, because if you think Bon Jovi comes over as ludicrous, I mean, the sort of things that Hibbs got out of Tom Jones... Gary Newman, Ringo Starr and Roger Waters are Roger just, Waters is I mean, astonishing, isn't it? It's <laughs> astonishing. I mean, he's so repellent. I mean, I think a lot of people would feel Roger Waters is pretty repellent now. I mean, he's just as repellent oh, oh. then. Roger Waters goes through listing various writers, Andy Gill, yes, Sean Murray, so bitter and Adam petty. Sweeting, yeah. by name and saying, these are horrible people, you know, and they know nothing about music. <laughs> and Hibbs goes, well, why is it? Because they don't like my new album. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, aren't they entitled to an opinion? It's not, yes. it's not Fact, you know, he makes lists of all the things he talks about. And, uh, it reads like you'd constructed the self obsessed pop star, except that it's real. That's, yeah. that's what's crazy about it. I mean, he's going, It is extraordinary that Andy Gill and Adam Sweeting and Charles Ray didn't notice the wall. They are supposed <laughs> yeah. to be music journalists. How could they not have noticed this extraordinary, well constructed, deep and meaningful and moving and important piece of work? <laughs> What the fuck's the matter with these assholes? He <laughs> 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 was thinking, hang on a minute. You're dealing with a 14 year old. Yes. Right, yes. right. It's just, yes. you know, go to your room, go tidy your room. As a as a so as a Beatles obsessive, Mark. I mean, how how did you react to the the Ringo Starr when it came out? Because you know Ringo does not come out of that interview well at all. Does no, it comes out really bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was quite funny because I mean, uh, you know, much like I adore Ringo Starr, mm. it was the idea that he's a, these kind of sacred cows. You know, you can't have a go at the Beatles. But actually, Ringo Starr, out of the context of the Beatles, was pretty ridiculous. You know, and and what he says about the Beatles was was uh, a lot of it's kind of a bit. A bit, uh, a bit unkind and a bit narrow and a bit, a bit difficult. 
So I thought it was fair enough. Well, the weird thing about Hibbs is he used to quite like the, all the people that you, you thought were going to be absolutely repulsive. He quite liked. Yes. You know, I sent him to interview Ronnie Biggs, I think it was. I don't yes. know if that's anything that's in the book. In Rio. In Rio. Yeah. And I was really pleased with this. I was thinking, this is incredible. I've managed to get a contact, Rio de Janeiro. I know where Ronnie Biggs lives. I've got to touch him. I've actually talked to him and said, can we send somebody out there and see you? And at great expense, Tom was thrown out too, I know. <laughs> And uh, loved Ronnie Biggs. Thought he was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, he kind of loved that kind of uh, wild maverick spirit, you know. And also, yeah. he loved that black and white world of old sixties movies, and he just loved yeah. the idea of the great train robbers were big heroes. You know, <laughs> thought that was quite funny, really. So there were often people that he oh, those we once sent him off to talk to Ian Botham, I think, when Ian Botham was walking across the the Alps with an elephant, you know, for charity. <laughs> Trotting along, I've trying to keep up with him, smoking, you know, <laughs> desperately trying to get a few that words out of him. Yeah. And Edwina Curry, I mean, I remember him talking to her. She said he smoked too much, he would lower his sperm count. I can remember him being a bit chastened by that. <laughs> but yeah, of course, he always kind of liked the... the um, Jimmy Savile was in there as well, actually. I mean, that was extraordinary. I mean, Jimmy Savile, which is where he sure. really put some pretty tough questions to him. But he says, how could I have com- committed any of these crimes that you're claiming I might have committed? Because I have a knighthood. And yes. that proves mm. it's Sir James. Mm. If I have a knighthood, it proves that Sir James is, uh, you know... Oh. Uh, I mean, obviously, kind of we considered inc- including, oh, including Jimmy yeah. Savile, but we just, we, we, no. we can't, we couldn't no, have no. done it. But it is, um, it's very disturbing yeah, revisiting it that interview. Yeah, of it course is. it is. We alluded earlier to the music that Tom genuinely did love. And so in the section called The Madcap Grandees, there is a piece where he actually sort of just lists his his heroes, who include... Vivian Stanchel. So we thought as a sort of to sort of offset the John Bon Jovi audio clip, we'd just play a brief clip of Vivian Stanchel talking to Trouser Press's Ira Robbins. Um, and anyway, it's just one can imagine Tom delighting in this again. You seem to form a, an effective partnership for for a while. I mean, the, the, the press reported, you know, daily occurrences of <laughs> horrible things yeah. you, you and Keith had done, oh, scaring well, innocent mothers. Yes. <laughs> they, 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 for the most part, had a compassionate backing. But that's that's how I justify a lot yeah. of it. I mean, we're um, testing testing greed and uh, I mean, seeing how. I dressed as a I, I dressed as a vicar. We wondered how long it would take. I. I Went into Oxford Street and had a, had a, a violent and dramatic heart attack, <laughs> which Keith was taking photographs and um, he had a, um, a, a tannoy system, a, a, a PA system on his Ivan Novello Mauve Rolls Royce, and um, was saying, "For God's sake, help him! <laughs> help him! For God's sake!" And nobody did. And I. With my hair pulled back, I make a quite a convincing priest. It's very odd, but I do. So I kept having these heart attacks, and I got—I had foaming blood capsules and things. This and nobody stops. And then Keith and his roadie got out and gave me a sound thrashing, and and, and uh, debagged me and ran off. And nobody took any notice of that. So, so that's a bit worrying, really. A 
Yeah. Vivian Satchel, kindred spirit for Tom. Kindred spirit. A lot spirit. of the same kind of uh, terminology as with vocabulary, isn't it? You know? Yes. Tom yes. would always have those kind of very Woodhouse-isms. You know, always talk about uh, being, uh, being in your cups. Yes. If you were drunk, you were in your cups. Yes. yes. Very if you, if you were tired, you were plumb tuckered out. <laughs> yes. fast, faster kip. Yes. Yeah. So funny. Yes. Very Sandry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just that we 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 chuck that in. That, I mean, the, just for any listeners who who didn't realise, it's Vivian talking about his long friendship with Keith Moon and the ridiculous japes and pranks they got up to. I mean, the full list in that Vivian Stanchel piece of these we have loved. These we have loved. <laughs> Sid Barrett, Rocky Erickson, Arthur Lee, Sky Saxon, Keith Moon, and Prince. And each of these is accompanied with a little description. I'll just read the one of Prince. Small fellow with the word slave currently emblazoned on his cheek. Notable achievement, shouting to the audience at his recent London gigs, what's my name, what's my name, and getting absolutely no reply because he has, of course, changed his name to an entirely unpronounceable squiggle. And it's like... You know, it is making fun of Prince, but it's under the heading of these we have loved. So it's kind of like... It's It's affectionate. The the Prince piece in this book is is great as well because he goes to see Prince on tour in Detroit and he kind of somehow makes friends with the, the check-in lady at the hotel that he's staying in. And is that he's like, he's got this, again, this whole fantasy world of like worrying that he's going to get beaten up by one of Prince's <laughs> bounce, like henchmen type, because Prince happens to be staying in the same hotel. And it's like, it's just absurd story, but it's suffused with this warmth that towards towards the woman at the front desk of the hotel towards Sheila Ree he's like that he I think he includes the piece on says like there's this fellow from Smash Hits referring to himself going what about that Sheila Ree then she's great isn't she and, and, he, and he's, uh, he's just uh, he's he's just wonderful wonderful to read all of all of his enthusings yes. David loved Prince because Prince was preposterous yeah willing and you, you know he loved the cartoons the outsiders the mavericks all of oh, that yeah. Yeah, yeah so we've got them because yeah. I, mean, I remember being at Mojo with you, Mark, when Tom went to interview Rocky Erickson. Oh yeah, in absolute hero. Is, yeah, I mean it's 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 obviously quite a disturbing piece because Rocky is is in you know his mental health is very fragile indeed, and it's you know in terms of kind of outsider artists, it's um you know it's it's not a kind of great chuckle, but he's you know his passion for the thirteenth floor elevators certainly comes comes blazing through in that piece. And yeah, great know, interview with Arthur Lee as well. Yeah. Uh, the Arthur Lee one's extraordinary. I mean, it's mm. a bit sad because Arthur Lee's obviously very, really crackers in some respects, isn't he? And it's very Not elliptical responses. Rocky, but... No, Rocky, exactly. It's very, very elliptical responses yeah. to it. But, I mean, it's just... Tom was so fond of these people. Yes. And there was a pattern emerging there. There were lots of slightly damaged, damaged slightly frail people that he was very exactly. fond of. You know? Exactly. Yeah, the warmth was unmistakable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right yeah. yeah. People yeah. never quite achieved what they could have achieved. Somehow mm. sort of fell at the final hurdle. There. One of the sort of threads that, that we wind through the book is Paul Gorman, author of Totally Wired, interviewed Tom in 2001. So for his original book, In Their Own Right, which I think he interviewed you for as well. So history of the, what was at that point an oral history of the music press. So I did ask if he could, and he did look for the tape of his interview with Tom, but has not been able to find it. But there's some just really interesting bits. So if we go on to the next like chapter of Tom's life, there's just this little quote at the beginning of, you know, when, when he, uh, you know, post, post who the hell. I made the leap from Q to the Observer in 1996 because Jocelyn Tom, who was a big fan of the Who the Hell pieces, rang me up and offered me a column. I swore when I went there that I'd never interview a pop star again. EMAP Metro were paying no money and I fancied writing for a national newspaper. 
they just cancelled Who the Hell, and Lynn Barber had stolen the idea. Probably true. By the end, they were getting me to interview third-rate actors from television that no one cared about. Robson and Jerome. What could you say about them apart from two crap actors who make dreadful records? (laughs) I've been told that Q had changed by them, but then I wasn't a big Q reader. I just read my pieces to see whether they'd cut my jokes out. (laughs) (laughs) And then he finally says, that's what's boring about rock now. I sound like such an old fart, but it's everywhere. When your father knows more about Echo Belly than you do, (laughs) he's read about it in the times you know something's up so that is a sort of you know prelude to these very very funny pieces that he wrote for the mail on sunday's night and day magazine there was just this pop column and they, 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 how he got away with it, i don't know but they are screamingly funny there's a review of john denver's autobiography oh, which, so which, in the previous just, life i was a mountain he probably wasn't but the, the point is he thinks he, <laughs> he thinks he was he tells you a lot about him oh, it, it, it's absolutely glorious i I mean, yes, don't laugh, it's true. Well, I'm sure it isn't true, actually, but that's not the point. The point is that he, Denver, believes it to be true. (laughs) Yes, here again, we have an American whose sense of reality has been drummed away by celebrity and too much money unto nothing. Unto nothing. Unto nothing. such a brilliant end of... It's just classic Hibbert, isn't it? So beautifully written. Beautifully written. It was very funny seeing him having to then write about people outside of his, completely outside of his kind of remit, you know, he was writing about, you know, ABBA and Queen, wasn't he? And people like, all the people that the Mail on Sunday readers wanted to read about, you know. Yes. And you say John Denver, I mean, he normally wouldn't, wouldn't be... And uh, you say he was writing about them. Really, he was sort of starting an article with their name and then going off in a <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely yeah, different yes. direction yeah, just yeah, because entirely, that... Entirely. But it's, it's, it's funny to me that, you know, I think, I don't, don't know that we actually include, I think, who included the bit about the mopping? Whose piece was that? Oh, um, that's Tom Doyle. Is it Tom Doyle's? Piece. Yes, it's Tom's. Tom uh-huh. Doyle. Yeah. So you actually track down this mop. Yeah, bop while you mop. Bop while you mop. Which was by the laser as like a, an accompaniment to them to their latest mop, and like Tom decided just to review that. There was instead. nothing else there was nothing to review that. And so we thought we've got that. We found it on Discogs or something. Yes, 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 yes. Beautiful. There's a there's a so from 1996 July 96. The lovely picture of. Tom with you and the late Andy Gill and Andy Kershaw oh, and your well, uh, wife Dylan. Claire at the yeah. Dylan show and in Hyde Park and that's accompanying a very very funny piece called Tense T-E-N-T-S Atmosphere Tense Atmosphere rock festivals then and now so he he sort of goes back to his memories of like the Bath Progressive Rock Festival and compares it to the bit about the Bath Festival that was a piece he wrote I think for Mojo wasn't it it's just incredible because he goes through all all these bands and it's an amazing lineup, isn't it you know it's Led Zeppelin it's Fairport Convention it's uh, Santana I can't remember who else on the bill and he hates hates all he's just waiting for the (laughs) waiting for the come on Yes. And he's there, just getting colder and wetter yeah. and more and more miserable, you yeah. know. Yeah. And when the birds come on, they're really disappointing, actually. They play acoustically or something. I know there's something yeah. wrong, but he's, I love the idea that he's, he's, he's set out his store with that, as not I basically hate 98% of this. <laughs> I'm waiting for the birds. Yeah. And now I've been disappointed by them yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> there's a piece, of course, called Tony Blaring Error, where um, he talks about the band. You were in, Mark, at Oxford. I was. With, with Tony. So, is uh, that the, that piece where he says, uh, 
Tony Blair was in a band, became Prime Minister. I'm, I'm now in a band with somebody who's in a band with Tony Blair. Yes. I will soon yes. be Prime Minister. Yes. Yes. I will, I will be Well, he yes. did, in fact, run for office. Oh, I went to Jasper, tell us about the section. After writing for the Mail on Sunday, he started also writing for the Observer and became Pendennis. The Observer's like diary character writing as Pendennis and he decided that it would be fun I suppose for Pendennis to run for office in Henley on Thames again. I went with him I was there that night that doesn't surprise yeah, me yeah. <laughs> when they read out the votes oh yeah no I was, I was there I was there d- during his campaign <laughs> because he just needed a moral the support. Candidate. Yeah. the weak candidate. It had to he be had the weak candidate. He was up against uh, Heseltine. Yes. Uh, yes. Who I think, God, I can't remember. Heseltine, Michael Ray Dibdin, Con. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And Tommy had a hard hitting campaign, which uh, he tried out of me in the car on the way there, I can remember. And there were various things. One was votes for women over 30, wasn't it, I think? Yeah. yeah. One was that Martin's the news agents in Henley was a very, <laughs> in a very dilapidated state and it needed a bit of a makeover. And so that was an important uh, thing. The, the repeal of the Corn Laws, I think. I can't remember. <laughs> yes. All various things. Yes. And he basically was there, you know, on, on, the, on the hustings, on the stuff. And, was and he got, in his bonnet or jacket? He didn't have a costume or anything? No, he didn't. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. <laughs> and, uh, and got about, I don't know, I can't remember. 160 well, you could tell us how much. Yeah, we've we've, we've reproduced votes. the results. <laughs> yeah, we have reproduced the results. He got 160 votes exactly, so he came last. He did come last. Unfortunately. But he, didn't, he didn't get elected on people. Voted, uh, voted for him. Voted for capital punishment, family capital values, punishment, capital corporal punishment. punishment. That's right. <laughs> Local issues. Henley deserves a proper post office. Britain deserves better. You can only be sure with the Whigs. Vote for me, unless you've already made your mind up and are voting for MRD Heseltine, con, which is fair enough. It's a free country after all. MB, Celia thinks this last bit is wimpy. I shall delete it. <laughs> Celia being his, like, totally made-up wife. Yes, and right. children that are like sort of pre um, Reese Reese Moggy and yes. wonderful names. I mean, yeah, it really yeah, is yeah, Jacob yeah. Reese Moggy before, before Benji Reece and Coriolanus are his children. <laughs> it's, it's like it's so absurd and so wonderful. And, and you know, we, we had to include this running for us. I love that you went with him to. to I did. I was there. Uh, yeah, as his. Uh, Whatever you call it, I can't remember now. Counting agent? I can't remember some expression for it. Counting agent? I can't remember now. So, did you fix the 160 yeah, votes? No, it's, 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 it's time to come clean. Stop, stop the steal! Did you have a rosette? Stop the steal! It's hilarious. Oh, dear. He was very pissed by the end of it. Uh, oh, that's all I can remember, that he just got drunker and drunker throughout. By seven in the morning, he was uh, absolutely incapacitated. Seven in the morning, crikey. Oh, it was all night. Well. All night. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. All night. And it left him pointing nowhere. You could hear the children say, He's the fella, the man who invented himself. So are we, we sort of come to the, you know, the, the, the sad you know, portion of this show. When when did it become clear that uh, Tom was 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 very unwell, was seriously unwell? Can you take us back? to Well, that? yeah, I think it. I ninety seven or something like yeah. that. Yeah, he basically had pancreatitis. Yes, and also he drank a lot. I mean, I, I I was aware that he drank a lot. Yeah, I mean, we we used to 
have a the, the, the love trousers rehearsals, and he occasionally turned up with something called diamond white, which I never heard of, which is a, it's a, something in sort of a two litre plastic bottles of very high uh, alcohol white. content. Fucking so it I sounds thought, like wow. a cleaning product, which is your first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, that's pretty strong. Tasted similar, but yes. uh, no. And so he drank a lot, and he had pancreatitis, and then I think also that combination of that and pneumonia, and he was in the. Charing Cross Hospital, just literally a few hundred yards from where we are now, actually, yeah. for a long time. He was in the intensive care unit for about three months, and I think was in a coma for He was in an induced coma. Induced coma for maybe yeah. some of the reason, about yeah. eight or nine days, I think. And I remember I was abroad working on some kind of story, came back while all this was going on, and went straight to the hospital. Wasn't allowed to see him because he was in uh, mm. the um, intensive care. And his mum and dad and his sister and Elise would come up every day and sit in the, in the, uh, in the Café Rouge opposite thing and were so good humoured and funny about it and so mm. entertaining they would be there every day and I used to go and see him when he was in the hospital and uh, he'd lost his, his memory and it's an extraordinary thing to see somebody getting their memory back it, it made me feel it's a bit like a kind of rock pool yeah. and that mm. when, you, when you pour the water back in it fills up kind of chronologically there's one amazing moment where I was talking about where he lived and maybe be going home soon and didn't know where he lived Mm. Uh, Did he know you? Fulham. Yeah, he did. did. And after a while, yeah, he figured out who I was. That's a good question. Exactly. And then uh, we were sitting there. There was a pause in the conversation. I was thinking, gosh, this is a bit sad. And the TV was flickering away. And on came an episode of Are You Being Served? I said, oh, you remember this? Are You Being Served? You remember these characters? And he could remember all their names. He could remember the names of the actors. He could remember the names of the characters they played. He could remember their catchphrases. I'm free. Wow. It'll ride up with wear or whatever it was. You know, he could wow. remember all those things. Yet yeah. he couldn't quite remember the present. Yeah. Couldn't remember what it was wow. that he did recently. So he never. I mean, poor old boy. He never really fully recovered from that. The interesting thing was that he he became the complete opposite of the character he was before. Right. Before he was a real kind of maverick, and he was he's never punctual. He was always late. He was always uh, he's a bit uncooperative. He's a bit grumpy. And after he became ill, he became intensely polite and always on time and uh, very well behaved mm. and never put a foot out, out of place. And uh, I missed the old Hibbs wow. so much. Wow. You know, I just missed the old Hibbs, who was this uh, unpredictable kind of wild card who'd always say something extraordinary and yeah. colourful. Wow, so, yeah, no, he was ill for a long time. Wild, he couldn't really work for a long time. Yeah. And just died very, very young. I mean, yeah. really sad. Yeah, he was 59. Because you imagine, yeah, you imagine what he might have been doing there, what books he might have written. and mm. Exactly. What he might have done. I mean, yeah. he did, I mean, he achieved a phenomenal amount anyway, but... Because uh, you went to see him quite a lot, didn't you? Even in I saw him a lot, yeah. He lived yeah. around the corner from me. I saw him a lot, yeah. yeah. We still went on holiday together. We used to go on these... Holidays, which were absolutely brilliant. He's still got into the spirit of those. We well, started these holidays. Coastal holidays. Yeah, the coastal holidays. Yeah. We always used to go to uh, an Easter with my wife, Claire, and our two kids, and him and Elise. We used to go to out-of-season holiday resorts <laughs> in order to play. Lived, oh, yeah. In order to play the crazy golf course. <laughs> and he would talk about crazy golf as if he was talking about, you know, the Open or whatever. You said. The, there's a great, we actually went to Spain to a place called Castel, uh, Calella, that's right. She had a classic course. So international yeah, which had a, Oh, yeah, yeah, which yeah. had a, a windmill <laughs> and a double pipe. <laughs> I, love I love this. I can remember him crouching down and looking down his putter. <laughs> Kind of eyeing up how he's best going to chip this one. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yeah. I loved reading that because I 
funnily enough, always loved crazy golf in this weird sort of way. As a kid, I adored it. And whenever I see one, I'm on holiday with my friends and I'll be like, can we go play crazy golf? And then I'll see like a dinosaur course or something. In a dinosaur, season, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'll be like, can we? And they're all like, what, what do you mean? Can we go play? And I'm like, well, something about it just really tickles me. So I, I love that detail because I would really have loved to, to meet Tom and I've spent so long reading his writing now and, and immersed in this that he just, you know, I would have really loved to get to know the, the character that you've just described so wonderfully. And that summed up, summed you up so well because that was taking, pretending to take yeah. seriously yeah. something that was absolutely absurd. ridiculous. Absurd. <laughs> absurd, absurd, absurd. <laughs> and I mean, you said, you know, what might he have been writing now if he were still with us? But what I wanted to ask you both is what do you think he would have made of this book? A rum-do, perhaps? <laughs> a rum-do. A rum-do. swizz. God, I don't know. He'd be a bit embarrassed by it, wouldn't he? I don't know. He's very modest, really. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. He'd have yeah. that huge Yeah, ego. I sort of thought possibly he would have been a mite embarrassed mm. by it. I don't know, but he was... Yeah, I think, well, I'm sure he would have been thrilled, been, I was going to ask you, Mark, because I'm, I'm thinking about what, what um, William Shaw wrote, and he was saying that he felt... I don't think that he got this from, from Hibbs, but he thought William did that perhaps Hibbs felt unrecognised I think was his word do you think that's true um maybe to some extent yes Mm. I mean but and I think he was actually because it was quite a a, quite a kind of select gang who followed Mm. him who Mm -hmm. read him on smash hits and it'd be interesting, actually, the reaction to this book, because mm-hmm. there'll be a load of people here who'll be encountering him possibly for the first time, going, I didn't know about this guy. Like Jasper, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly, because yeah. you wouldn't have known about him, would you? Well, you're young for yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the time I started reading, yeah. he'd stopped writing, basically. Yes. Think, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. how it works for me. Mm. But Does yeah. it feel like a lost world to you, the, the way that he writes then? Maybe to an extent. I mean, I, I think he's so unique that, yes. that it's lost because he's not with us. But I think that his influence actually can't be understated because his humour, I don't know, it seems like it was a bit out of keeping with the time when he was writing. And it's now that that brand of ironic humour is all over the place now, you know, not not being done as well as he did it, but but it's a mode of speaking, a mode of being funny that, that exists, right? And I think that it kind of feels like he blazed that trail to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and after all, I mean, you know, P.G. Woodhouse, who's often kind of referred to as one of Tom's influences, you know, is is never really going. He's never going to be out of date, is he? Mm-hmm. I don't think, you know. So I do. I think you're right. He's unique, and he was sort of, in a sense, Tom was an anachronism at the time, mm-hmm. and and therefore I think he kind of transcends it all. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know, and yet I, you don't really see or are encouraged very much to. A whole a couple of generations. I mean, now you'd not have written like that, and it's yeah. certainly nothing that you see in any, any of the broadsheets. I don't know no. Mojo. They don't really write like like that as no. well. That you know, it's a bit, no. a bit, so unique to him. But generally speaking, certainly you hear, there's nothing of that in the mainstream anywhere. No, no. One of these it's mean. It's mean out probably, there. You know, it's mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think a lot of people probably were influenced clever. by his writing style. You know. Yeah. Um, by his turns of phrase and the way he looked at the world, I think quite a few writers. Occasionally, I read things in, you know, in broadsheets and think this is somebody who grew up with smash hits or whatever. Of course, yes. So I think yeah. that I think he was very influential. I think that's absolutely the tendrils are out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the things I loved most in the book was uh, Bob Stanley writing about discovering this book, Rare Records, that Tom put together, which we have a copy of, and. 
the fact that Tom just was like, there's just sort of no diplomacy in it. You know, he was just rude about the, the phrase that sort of made Bob Stanley a fan for life was the appalling Graham Nash. That's right. And this was, <laughs> it was sort of supposed to be a kind of neutral guide yeah. where your personal opinions didn't sort of infect right. the tone That's of the right. book. And he just didn't care. No, he no. Just, he so, couldn't resist the opportunity. I mean, he, no. he felt so acutely. He was very, very keen on, on, on representing his own taste, wasn't he? Yes. <laughs> and would not be seen to be endorsing something that was off-brand. Like Squeeze. Like Squeeze! <laughs> Precisely <laughs> like Squeeze. He hated so my record back back You can believe it. He's by Joe but... Jackson, I can remember. He didn't like... He didn't like mean craft work. He didn't like electronic music. He didn't like reggae. He didn't really yeah. like soul. Right. You know, he just yes. did... I mean, it was pretty narrow. Pretty, pretty, pretty narrow. It was it? White rock yeah. by kind of uh, acid casualties. Mainly it. I, I did want to just sort of end on, on a sort of, you know, semi-humorous note, because it's obviously sad. When, it was so sad when we lost him. But I wanted to mention his friend Juggins, because we've got a wonderful picture of, of, of Tom sitting on Juggins' shoulders in 1970. That's another P.G. Woodhouse hair. thing, isn't it? When yeah. I first met him, he introduced Jug- me to Juggins, and then he, uh, Juggins was another friend of Tom's. He was just called Basingstoke. <laughs> <laughs> Basingstoke, well, who wore a top hat. Well, so, so Juggins crops up in three different places in this book. There, there is this picture, and it's long hair, and it's, it looks like they're on their way to the Bath Progressive Rock Festival or something. But Elise also alludes to Juggins um, in, in Tom's sort of final years, and, um, and she writes, uh, or, she, or rather she, she said this to us and we transcribed it. For a few months, Tom was at his parents' house, and then he got a flat in Reading. I really think he just sat around with his old friend Juggins listening to music. But he'd still come to London once in a while. We still had such a bond. We used to watch The Wire religiously whenever he visited me. But it didn't amount to a whole person, if that doesn't sound too callous. And then I also just wanted to mention in our sample definitions from the wonderful book Rock Speak, the dictionary of rock terms, which was published in 1983, there is an entry for Juggins. And the definition is a slow-witted, subservient person, a simpleton who does as he is told. I don't know how. Well, you used to use that expression on Smash Hits all the time. What the juggins? What the juggins? What the hell? What the juggins? Was that juggins original? Is this? Did he invent that? The new Squeeze he... album. What the juggins? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I think he did invent that. Yeah. yeah, I just love the idea that he, you know, obviously someone commissioned him to write this this book of dictionary of rock terms, and in it, as basically a private joke to himself, he puts in a, a definition to slag off his best mate. That's right. <laughs> That's I think true. that kind of sums him up in a funny That's sort of true. way. It's, it's I, I just love it. I really yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. And there's also, you know, Biffo, an unintelligent male person. <laughs> um, Jazz Woodbine, which I first remember hearing yes. at, at Mojo. Yeah. It was a phrase that was, was often tripping For off your lips. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Noodle, to play aimlessly upon a musical <laughs> instrument. <laughs> <laughs> to perform an intricate but ultimately pointless and very dull solo. Oh, I mean, it's just cool. We've got a sort of whimpering. Yeah. Get one's head together. Quid deal. Tasty. Quid deal. <laughs> That's wonderful. It does instantly transport know, one back to yeah. sort of days of greatcoats and yeah. roundhouse sort of <laughs> Exactly. Of, you know, triple bills. 
and him sitting stuff. in the middle of it all, rather hating it, <laughs> waiting for the birds to come back. Or Moby Great, this this, this uh, incredibly sad story. Just but they were like traveling. I think this they were in really- Mendocino. They were traveling up the the California coast, and they got to Mendocino, and they and- stop off somewhere. And is it with Tom Doyle that? Or is it, I can't uh, remember. I'm not sure. But it was, someone spots the it might fact be that, William Shaw that Moby it. Grape are playing a gig in the town that they're staying in, but it happened yesterday, and they all oh, yes. futile, oh. the futile attempt to hide this matter yeah. that Tom they can't bring themselves to tell. They can't Tom tell, that but he, he, he finds has missed out his favourite like, band by oh. 24 hours. The only opportunity he would ever have had to see whatever the iteration of William Moby Grape was. Is it William? He would, yeah. he would never have recovered. he was out there and then oh, Tom was going yeah, to join yeah, them. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and, he, and he just, he's just, you know, crushing. Well, he's he never got, got to see. Nothing to see here. <laughs> keep walking. Yes. 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 Moby Grape was the perfect, it was ultimately, and he writes about this in, in the great piece he wrote for Love is the Drug, that, that uh, John Azelwood anthology. And it, it's, uh, he had discovered this group that, of which only he was ever really going to be a fan. It was even better than the birds because no one else was ever going to love they were just going to be his band um, that's a classic thing that yeah isn't it? and then and then the more people that discover them the more you resent those other people being there <laughs> I was there in the early days well, have you heard any of their demos yes have you heard any of their objective B sides that's right yeah, yeah I know yeah bless fabulous well yeah bless him I think that's that's it really it is it? really I mean the very last thing in the book is the beautiful obituary you wrote in oh, the Guardian you, you know after he died in 2011 and that's um, yes it's it really is a, a, a perfect summation of everything we've talked about in this wonderful episode thank you so much for joining us to, to reminisce about your old friend and colleague thank you for having us yes absolutely a pleasure brings us to the end of this episode we'll be back in a uh, in a fortnight with Kimberly Mack who's going to talk to us about black rock and roll indeed she's written a book about living colour Vernon Reed. if you've enjoyed this episode please follow our podcast on Spotify Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use and do give us a glowing review if you can it really helps do also visit Rock's Back Pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush check to see if your local library or academic institution subscribes to Rock's Back Pages if not maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And obviously go out and buy a thousand copies of Few A Readers, The Life and Writing of Tom Hibbert. Absolutely. Published by 9-8 Books and out 1st of February, which is the day this episode will go live. So it's there, it's out there, go get it. It's out there, people. And on that note, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Jasper, and goodbye from our wonderful guests, Mark Ellen and Sylvia Patterson. Goodbye. Goodbye. That concludes episode 170 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guests Mark Ellen and Sylvia Patterson. Few A Readers, The Life and Writing of Tom Hibbert, is published by 9-8 Books and available now from all good bookshops. The host was Barney Hoskins and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Two.